0: Okay, the scripture reading for tonight comes from Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace and all of the truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Going down to verse 13. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and all things in him hold he holds all things together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the of the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross.
1: Good evening. How's everybody doing? I hope well. At least Ben answers me when I ask questions. Um, Yeah, it is my privilege to be here. I'm I'm uh, surprised by the kind things been said of me, and so I greatly appreciate those, especially seeing as the story I'm about to tell. But uh, I did have the privilege, my name is Jason Shiver, uh, I was here for, oh gosh, I think eight years as director of student ministries here, and so I work with college students all the way down to fifth grade. Um, many, some of my former students are here tonight, uh, it's good to see you guys and it's just always a privilege to get to partner with someone who you've been in ministry with before and get to see God continue to use them. And so I'm really excited to help to be part of this thing that, that you guys are, have chosen to also be a part of and that Ben has started. And one of the things I want to say to you is that um, this church plant will not fail because of how good a job Ben does um, or how poor a job Ben does. Uh, that success will not depend on Ben either. Uh, the goal of a church plant is to see a movement of the gospel in a community. And so that means that, that we're all a part of this, okay? That, that many of you guys are volunteers and grateful for all the things you did. Uh, I've been in this room many times setting up chairs and trying to get video to work and trying to get projectors to work and worried if a storm would knock all that out. Uh, I've been there before. So I know how that feels. And uh, every one of us play a role in what God is doing here. And so tonight, I just want to share a bit of that with you of, one, what your role looks like, but also just the gospel as a movement itself. And everybody knows that our society right now, we're facing a lot of of questions. And as I was sharing with Ben just what was on my heart, he said, you know, Ben's always um, five weeks ahead if you didn't know I'm always five minutes behind, and so that was always one of the fun parts of us working together. And so Ben was calling me, asking me what my, what my sermon text was going to be, and I said, well, I'm thinking about doing this, and he would say, I, I already did that. And then I said, well, then I think I'll just, you know, really feel God put it on my heart. I'm just going to speak from Philippians 1. No, I just, I just preached through the whole book of Philippians. And so I was down to only one book of the Bible left that Ben had not told me I couldn't speak from. And so we're going to be looking at Colossians today. Uh, But as we get started, i got to tell at least one Ben Harris story. You know, there's moments in your life where something happens and you just, in that moment, you don't have to say it to anyone, no one said it to you, but you just know that God exists. And not just that God exists, but that God loves you in particular, right? Have you ever had one of those moments, right? It could be the most mundane thing. It doesn't have to be anything spectacular. It could be as simple as as looking at a sunset over the ocean. Well, one of those moments in my life that's forever etched in my life is that one night I was here on this campus. We were in a room over there. We had been, if I remember right, we had been in a camp. Uh, We were trying to put everything up for the day. It had been a long week, it had been a long night. It was moving towards like 11 or 12 o'clock at night, and Ben Harris said something that he commonly said to me, which was one of two things. Either I can't find my wallet or I can't find my keys. And this happened to be a I can't find my keys night. And so Ben and I went on this wild goose chase for about at least an hour looking for his keys. And at some point, we're back in the office together, and we're both exhausted. And it was one of those things where you'd say, like, I'll go up look in, you know, this building, and I'll go look in that building. Okay, I'll go check this. Okay, where all were we? And if you know anything about this campus, if, if you had a lot of stuff to put back, it's in all different places. So we had to check all kinds of places. And we're back in the office, and we're sitting there. And we used to have this desk that I really liked. Because I could sit on one side and Ben could sit on the other side. And I don't know how he felt about it. But for me, it was like we were like the old school detectives. Remember when the two police detectives would like share the desk and they'd sit on either side? So that's what I always felt like. So we're sitting on either side. And I can see just to the side of Ben, there's this, uh, we had this metal bookshelf. And clipped onto the metal bookshelf is his carabiner with his keys on the bottom. Now, mind you, at this point, we're getting towards one o'clock at night. And the minute I saw the keys, like he's talking to me, they are right here, like next to his shoulder. I thought, man, God really does exist and he really does love me. And so I thought, it's already one o'clock at night. I might as well enjoy this. And so I just started asking Ben, so where's the last place you remember your keys? What do you think you did with them? What are we going to do if you can't find them? And this went on and on. And finally, I revealed to him, I don't remember how, but I revealed to him that his keys were next to him. Do you remember that? You, like, you don't? Wow. Well, tells you how many times we lost our keys. Um, but you know, they're those small moments, I think, that God reminds us of his great love for us. And I hope that, is, that tonight is one of those moments for you as we look at who God is. And so we're going to look at uh, chapter one of the book of Colossians. And I just want to give you a little background because I'll be back next week. And so I want to give you a little bit of background on the book because I'm going to be speaking uh, from the same book, a similar passage. But the book is unique because Paul is writing this from one of his many imprisonments. So Paul's in prison. He's writing this letter. He sends it with a messenger there. But what's interesting about the church at Colossae is that Paul had never visited it. It's one of the letters that we have where Paul really has no connection with this ministry. He didn't start the church plant. He did not necessarily send someone to go start it. But it was someone who had been a disciple of Paul. He had been in Paul's fold. And so he has gone out and started this church. And he's come back. Uh, This is Epaphras. Amy mentioned his name earlier. Epaphras has come back and he's shared with Paul about how well the church is doing. But what he says to Paul is the church is really doing well. The gospel is flourishing there. But he says there are two major things that are jeopardizing the growth of the gospel in this community. And he gives him two things, and I think you find these fairly universally in the Bible. But the first one is polytheism, which basically means that many converts, converts to Jesus see Jesus as just another one of many sort of self help. Um, things that can come along in life okay and so what happened oftentimes is that people would convert to Jesus but then they would go back to their old religion or they would mix a little bit of the Christian thing with a little bit of their old religion they would experience and they were constantly in the middle of this kind of tug of war between this new faith that they had started to exercise and some of their old habits and some of the old things uh, that had been part of their life and I think all of us can relate to that but the other thing was this which I don't know that we can really relate to, or at least at first glance, we don't seem to relate to oftentimes. But it was this. It was the fact that uh, Colossi would have been a mostly Gentile congregation, which means they would have not grown up with Jewish tradition. But there was this pocket of Jews that lived near them, Jewish Christians, and what they began to do is they began to, to challenge these new Christians with that they needed to also adhere to the same laws and the same regiments that the Jewish people had had been part of. And so this was constantly a struggle in the Bible, was how do we relate now that we've seen this work of Jesus on the cross, we've seen his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness, how do we relate now to God's law? Okay, And so for us, it probably doesn't feel like it connects that much, but yet I, I think tonight we'll begin to see it does. And so... Real quickly, let me just tell you a little bit about the structure of this letter because it's, it's really fascinating what Paul does. Now, remember, Paul's never been there. So he starts off the book of Colossians with probably the familiar part, uh, the last part Amy read, where it says that, that basically Jesus is the revelation of the invisible God. You know, we, we read that a lot in church. We love the end of Colossians 1 because it exalts Jesus in such a powerful way. Um, a friend of mine used to say that, that Jason, you, you can't just tell people that Jesus is beautiful. You have to show them that Jesus is beautiful, and I always thought that was a really uh, challenging thing to think of. And I think Colossians one, Paul does an amazing job of not just saying that Jesus is that what Jesus has done for us is beautiful, but he really spells it out and he shows us the beauty of what Jesus has done. But so the letter begins with this exaltation of Jesus. And then it shifts gears pretty abruptly. And what Paul begins to do is he begins to share with how his own suffering is in relation to is and is in relationship with Jesus' suffering, which to us maybe sounds a little arrogant at first. We're like, wait, how can this guy compare you know what he's faced to our Savior and what Jesus did on the cross? But then third, Paul shifts to the pressures that they're under that could cause them to turn away from Jesus. So you find that in like chapter 3 of Colossians. And then in chapter 4, you see Paul offering them this new way of life that comes through faith in Jesus and this new way of life that Jesus has opened them up to. And so here's why Paul connects that to his own suffering. What Paul and what I think God is going to challenge us with tonight is this idea that if Jesus suffered... Why in the world would we think we would not suffer? And I think one of the big critiques that is coming at the church right now with all of, the, all of the things that are going on in our culture, I think one of the big critiques that's going on with the church is, is the church willing to suffer for other people? Is the church willing to suffer for their neighbor? I heard a pastor one time speak on the passage, Love Your Neighbor, and one of the things he said was that what that means is that when we see our neighbor have a need or have a problem, that we should meet that need as if it were our problem. That really is hard. (laughs) If you actually took that, right, and you put that into practice, what would it be like if everyone you ran into, they told you your problem and you just took it on and said, okay, I'm going to meet this problem just like I would if it were my own problem. And so one of the things Paul's saying is that to follow Jesus, there is going to be a sense of suffering in that. That when you follow Jesus, and when you understand rightly what Jesus has done on the cross, it causes you to to be willing, at least, to abandon all. It causes you to be in prison like Paul was it causes you to maybe leave an established church and come be a part of a church plant where you're not sure if the electricity is going to work or not. Okay, Uh, I've been there. And so Paul ends this with this really interesting challenge to them. By the end of the book of Colossians, Paul basically challenges the Colossians to live in the present as the kind of people they will one day become. Okay, so think of that the challenge of the Christian is to live in the present, live today like the people we will one day become. So what does that look like? What what is the end of the story that God has invited us to through the person and work of Jesus? So the end of the story is this. You would go to Revelation 21 and 22. And what it very interestingly says is that the end of our story is not heaven in the way you and I think of it. When I was a kid, I thought of heaven as this beautiful white room that everything would be, like, there would be no other color. It would be all white. We'd be on some clouds that when I got there, you know, they would ask me the question. Um, I grew up Baptist, so they would ask me the question, why shall I let you in the kingdom of God? I had found out that answer as a little kid, so I had my answer ready. So I was good to go. And once I gave that answer, then they would usher me in, they would bestow on me wings, and then they would hand me some kind of an instrument that I didn't know what it was, and then they would tell me where my place was in the heavenly choir, and I would walk up 300 million flights of stairs and scooch over and apologize to everyone as I slid over with my angel wings on, and I would sit down and I would join the singing of praise songs forever and ever. Um, that's what I thought heaven was. I thought heaven was this place where all earthly desire, all um, stress of sin, all of that was just gone, and now my emotions have been kind of whitewashed, much like the picture of my heaven was, and I was just placed into part of the choir, right? I've been indoctrinated enough that I can now join the choir and, and hopefully keep a tune. Um, I would tell you if you read Revelation 21 and 22, it's a very different picture of what heaven is. Heaven is a city. It tells us very early on that God actually leaves heaven and comes to dwell with us on on what it calls a new heaven and a new earth. That this this is a different place from where God has lived, and yet it's also a different place from where you and I have lived. Does that make sense? Okay? It's not us going to live where he's always been. And it's not him coming to live on this earth. See, there, there is a theology that thinks that we are going to just be able to, if we work hard enough as the church, that we could turn this earth into heaven. That's not really true either. It's going to take a work of God, a redemptive work of God, to see this place changed into this new heaven and new earth that were offered at the end of the Bible. And so the reality is what Paul's saying is that you have to keep in mind where you're headed so that today you can find a way to live like that. So what does that mean? That means that every tribe and every tongue and every nation is gonna be gathered in this beautiful city that God is going to create. And so the reality is, here's the reality of our situation. Um, I don't know how you've processed the last, really the last month, I would say, has been a little difficult for me. But the reality has been this, um, there are certainly prejudices in my own heart. There are places in my own heart that for all different reasons, it could be men and women, it could be um, racial tensions, it could be socioeconomic tensions, but there are places in my heart where when I'm around other people who think differently than me or act differently than me or believe differently, differently than me that I'm uncomfortable. And I think every one of us could say that, right? That there are moments where we are uncomfortable because someone else has a different set of experiences than we do or has a different set of priorities than we do. Just think about marriage, Right? What is marriage? It's two people coming together with totally different priorities and trying to figure out a way to make that work. Marriage in and of itself is a picture of this new heavens and new earth. And so as a society, one of the things we have to realize is that we are called to picture that time in God's redemptive history. That as a church, that, was, that is what people should experience. They should experience the love of God being able to overcome all of these different priorities that we all have. So uh, let's look at the text today. I want to give you basically just three points. One is that one of the things we see pretty immediately here is that the gospel a movement. And so let me, let me read for you just a second from the Message Bible. Uh, I love the translation of this section Uh, And it's verses 5 through 8, but I just want to read it again for you from the message. It says this, the message, not meaning the Bible, but the gospel. The message is as true among you today as when you heard it. It does not diminish or weaken over time. It is the same all over the world. The message bears fruit and gets larger and stronger as it has in you even when you heard it even for the very first day that you heard it and recognized the truth that God is doing. You've been hungry even more to hear it. It is as vigorous in you now as when you learned it from your friend, our close associate, Epaphras. He is one reliable worker from Christ. I could always depend on him. He is the one who told us how thoroughly love has been worked into your lives by the Spirit. I love that line. Work, uh, Love being worked into your lives by the Spirit. And so this is the joy that Paul is experiencing in prison as he hears from his co-laborer of what is going on in this church plant in Colossae. But what Paul's hearing is that it's not just that the gospel's been preached, that somebody has told them of all that Jesus has done, but it's that it's caught hold, it's taken root. You know, you start to think back to all these times like in Matthew where, where the, the kingdom of God is described as like a mustard seed or it's described as um, yeast being worked into dough and that it's starting to do its work and that something's building and, and no one really knows what all's coming, but you can sense something's happening. I think one of the best places in the literature that you see this is a person like C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia. When they say over and over again, Aslan is on the move. And the characters don't really know what that means, but they know something's coming. And what Paul is saying is, the gospel is on the move amongst these people. And that's what a church plant ought to look like. People should walk in and they should see us taking our lives and bowing it at the foot of the cross. And being willing over and over again to come back and say, okay, God, what do you have for me today? Okay, God, where is it you're at work right now in my own heart? Um, so quick story, um, March 26, 2015, Amy and I were in New York City. We were celebrating my birthday. Uh, it happened to be my 40th birthday, so it was a pretty big birthday for me. Um, and we were headed, I was, I was very excited. Uh, we had gotten tickets to go see a Broadway show. We were, uh, we, we had seen this guy, another show of his a long time ago. And we didn't even really know anything about him. But we loved that it. it became my favorite Broadway show. And so we we're getting to go to his next thing that he was going to do. And it was off Broadway. So they weren't even yet really putting it out. And so we had these tickets. And on our way down, uh, that day we had decided we were so nervous about being late that we'd actually decided to go down and spend all day in that area of New York so we wouldn't have to rush or have anything crazy happen and you couldn't make it. So we're down there, we get a phone call. Um, I think I answered the phone and the person on the other line says, very sorry, we've had to cancel the show tonight due to, uh, well, they say, air quality. What happened, there was a fire in a building next to the building that the show was in. And so because the air quality is so bad, they were canceling the show. And we were devastated. I was devastated. I'm sure Amy was sad. I was devastated. <laughs> um, and so like I normally do, and since my wife is amazing and she's always up for an adventure, I said, let's see if we can still pull this off. We're only going to be in New York for two more days. Let's see if we can pull this off. And so we knew there was this like, little small glimmer of hope that if you went through this long process you may be able to get standby tickets which aren't always guaranteed so we had to get up early the next morning we had to go back down to the theater the next morning we had to sit they opened the door then we went and sat by another door and then like two hours later they opened the box office and then you put your name on a waiting list and then you came back that night to see if your name got called And sure enough, our name got called. And so, I guess this was in the 27th. So on the 27th, Amy and I saw Hamilton. And one of the lines that has always stood out, even from the first time I ever saw Hamilton, was uh, there's a moment in Hamilton. So we're going to talk Broadway for a second, okay? So this is when, like, some people, you're allowed to zone out or go to the restroom if you want to for a second. So in Broadway, you have what's called the I Want song. And what it does is it tells you what the character desires. So it's normally the second song in the musical, but the character is going to have this moment. So uh, if you look at the Wizard of Oz, the I Want song in the Wizard of Oz, anybody know? What's the only song you know from the Wizard of Oz? Somewhere Over the Rainbow is the I Want song because it tells you what Dorothy wants. And then the rest of the story plays out to force the character to go on that journey or plays out what that character's journey looks like. And so the I Won't song for Hamilton is a song called um, My Shot. And at one point, the character says, he says, scratch that, this is not a moment, it's a movement, right? And I can remember the first time I heard that, like, realizing, okay, this is about this birth of a nation, it's making the point that all these immigrants have come together to, to accomplish this, and just how amazing it is that that God puts all these, these people with all these talents in the same place at the same time and you get like the U.S. Constitution out of that. And then you get a form of government that stood for 200 plus years. Like there's just amazing things that happen, right? But the idea that, that what is a movement? A movement is not just a moment in time that we look back and recall periodically. A movement is something that has happened that has, that has basically changed the whole landscape. And so now everything else that comes in the future has to be run back through that lens of that moment. And so for me, one of the questions, as you and I look and spell out what it means to follow Christ is, is, is was the gospel just a moment for us? Or is it actually a movement in our life? And is it, is it something that's continuing to shape who we are. Because for many of us, the gospel was just a moment. Right? I was in school. I, I heard the story of Jesus. I was a little kid. I was seven years old when I responded to the gospel. I can remember, it was like a Sunday night service. Um, the pastor basically gave, I don't know exactly what he said, but I'm sure it was like kind of a fire and brimstone kind of thing. And in my seven-year-old seven year ears, all I heard was this. There are two destinations. One of them is not fun. The other one has ice cream. And so I stood up and I walked down the aisle because I wanted ice cream. And I don't really know how God looks at that conversion moment. uh, But that is my conversion moment. But I do know this. um, I don't know that I really thought of ice cream. but, But that's exactly... I, I knew one destination was bad and one, one sounded amazing. And I, I just want to go to that one. What I'm very thankful for is that God has continued to work that yeast into my life. And that that seed has continued to grow and mature. And that seed has continued to change me every day. And hopefully it's changing you every day. And so that is Paul's great joy when his friend comes and shares this with him in prison is because Paul knows what it's like to see Aslan on the move. Paul knows what it's like to see the gospel taking root. Paul knows what it's like to see a life that is continuously being shaped by the gospel. So point two, the gospel is a pattern of life, okay? So it's not just a movement in our life or in our community, but it's also a pattern of life. So in November... Uh, I had to attend, uh, Ben was mentioning me as like a piece of God's discipleship in his own life. Uh, One of the pieces of discipleship in my life uh, was a guy named Ted Strawbridge. And so in November, I attended his funeral. He had passed away uh, suddenly. None of us were expecting it. And so to go back and to sit and to um, go back to Ocala, Florida, which was where uh, Ted and I had ministered together. I was on staff with him. He was my first senior pastor out of seminary. I had spent five years there. And he, God had really used him to shape me into who I was. And we had remained friends. And he was basically the guy um, I called. At one point in my church plant, uh, a, a church literally moved in across the street to me and put their sign up. It, so my house sits across from an elementary school, and they stuck their new sign up in this elementary school. And I remember walking out on a Sunday morning and seeing their sign and just thinking, God, why did you call me here? Like, if you knew this was going to happen, why would you bring me here, right? This was the guy I called in that moment. when I was like, okay, I'm really upset with, with Jesus. Tell me why I shouldn't be upset with Jesus. Um, I would call Ted. And so in November, Ted had passed away. But one, one of the other roles Ted played in my life is that uh, he's probably also the person who's hurt me the worst in my life. And I think that sometimes this is how life plays out, right? Uh, many times the people you love the most can be the ones that you're most in danger of being hurt from. And so there have been a moment where I felt like Ted should have stood up for me and should have um, owned up to his part of something and he kind of, in my mind, let me take the fall for the whole thing. And I can remember trying for, for weeks after that to process, like, how do you handle when you're betrayed by someone you, you care about? And especially someone that you've maybe put up on a pedestal and you've looked up to. And so as I kept working through that, I kept realizing, you know, I tried to do what most of us do when it comes to things like forgiveness. I tried to kind of forget about it. Okay, he didn't mean to. That's just an anomaly, whatever, right? And every time I'd see him, I would feel that same hurt and that same anger and frustration. I don't know if, I assume you've been there before. Um, it wasn't until I realized how the gospel creates a pattern for life for us. So here's how the gospel began to affect my understanding of forgiveness I thought forgiving was forgetting, right? And so every time I would see my friend, and I would feel that same hurt and that same anger. I would think in my own head, I haven't forgiven him. I failed. And then I realize that the gospel says there's always a hurt to be taken. Right? When Jesus goes to the cross, why is it that when Jesus goes to the cross, or, or why is it that if God was going to forgive us, why don't we even need the cross? Is God not powerful enough just to say, just forget about it? They sinned, but I'm just going to say we just forget about it, right? Because that's our typical definition of forgiveness. But when we see Jesus go and suffer and we see Jesus die a brutal death on our behalf and we, we hear these words of anguish when Jesus says to his dad, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your back on me on the cross? Like, what is going on? Well, what's going on is that our sin has caused a hurt. And someone has to pay for the hurt. And so on the cross, what we see is we see Jesus being willing to go and die for our hurt. And for me to forgive my friend, it did not mean I was not going to feel hurt anymore. What it meant is that I was going to take on that hurt myself to still be friends with him. And that I was going to um, to not give that back in like passive-aggressive ways. Have you ever been hurt by somebody and like... You're okay when they're around you, right? And you'll like be kind to them, but then the minute they leave, like you'll passive aggressively pass that hurt off with other people. Like, can you believe that right? That's what we're doing. What are we doing? We're choosing not to take the hurt on ourselves. We're we're giving it off in another way. And so when I say that the gospel is also a pattern of life, what I mean to say is we can never stray too far from the cross. Because it's at the cross that all of these things, that Paul and all these things that the the writers of the Bible are going to challenge us with, the most beautiful picture of every one of them is the cross. So if you're in church and you start talking about being a more generous person, right? Which we hear this all the time. We we should tithe and you should tithe. Help Ben out. Um, But we hear... I like that he's the only one that laughed. But... But when we hear that, oftentimes we walk in and we just kind of want to get our ducks in a row. We're like, what is enough? Right? Just tell me the number, give me a percentage, and then I'll I'll know that I'm, I'm doing okay, that I'm doing my part. Well, here's the problem where is generosity most beautifully pictured in the Bible? It's the cross, isn't it? It's the person of Jesus. He generously gave up his home in heaven. Do you realize um, it, I'm right now serving as a principal of a Christian school. I grew up with a mother who was a principal. And my mother used to tell me all the time, she said, the best job you can have is the assistant principal. Right? She said, because nothing falls on you. She's like, there's somebody above you to take all the heat, but you're still getting to, to do all the things they or do most of the things they do. And I I think she's right, okay? I'm now the principal of the school. I know she's right at this point. But here's the deal. Jesus was even in a a better situation. He wasn't just the assistant principal. He was the king's son in heaven. It's the best place you could be. You don't have all the responsibilities. You remember, um, oh, what was it? Bruce Almighty, when... uh, when Jim Carrey becomes God and all, his email just floods. Blah, 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 right, all this flood. Like, he, Jesus doesn't even have to answer God's emails. Jesus just got to be the prince of heaven. He got to walk around and all the angels were like, don't mess with him, that's God's son. Right? And he leaves that to come here. Not the best choice in my, in my mind, Okay? And so we see this beautiful generosity. So how is the gospel a pattern of life? Um, three things I just want to mention to you guys real quick. One is, and, and you've heard these before, but I want to mention to you how they become a pattern of life. Um, people have talked about how we live in an upside-down kingdom, right? The first shall be last. Uh, if you're in ministry, you'll call it incarnational ministry. But it's basically you are looking at what Jesus did and the things he was willing to give up. Paul will eventually say, I will become all things to all men so that I might save some. Right? And so there's, there's this beautiful sense that we see in the gospel. We see this generosity, this willingness to give up all of the things that, that Jesus is entitled to. And so a call for us to give up the things that we're entitled to necessarily or that we perceive we're entitled to. That could be a whole nother sermon, right? But we perceive we're entitled to, to give those up to see the gospel move forward, right? So that's one way that the gospel informs us. The second way is it informs us inside out. You remember? Where does God look? Why why is someone like King David okay, even with all the things that he did wrong? Why is King David okay? Because God looks on the heart. And it says, David was a man after God's own heart. And so our challenge as a church is, is to stop looking necessarily all the time at the outward actions, but look upon the heart. So one of the most helpful things I've heard in the last three months was a friend of mine in Ben's, Mike Aitchison, said this. He was talking about um, the racial tension that's in our country right now. And he said, I think there's one key verse for us. And he said Romans 12, 15. And in my mind, I don't have the best memory. And so I'm thinking Romans 12, 15. Now that that doesn't really talk about racial reconciliation. What is that? You know what that verse is? It's our call to mourn with those who mourn. Here's an African-American pastor in the PCA who is, I'm sure in his own way, Angry, upset with different things, has experienced different things in his life. And he says the call of the church is to mourn with those who mourn. And so here's what he said. He said our brothers are hurting. As a church, we should go connect with their hurt before we necessarily connect with all the actions that are happening. And yet, what do we do at times? We stand back a distance because we say, I don't like how this is playing out. You know, I don't like that this is happening or that I understand people are upset, but they're doing this and that, that's not okay, right? And so I think that's, that's something that gospel speaks to because what it says is God looks at the heart and that we should look at our brother's heart as well first and we should identify with their hurting. Think about how you treat your own children, right? When they get angry, when they're frustrated, when they're mad, when they say something— You and I understand naturally as parents that we need to talk to them about how wrong it was what they said, but we also need to circle back around and and talk to them about the heart condition and why they did that. And wow, you really seem upset at your sister to have slapped her in the face. What's going on? Right? When we ask that, we're not telling them it's okay to slap someone in the face, are we? We're caring for them enough Good job. (sighs) See, that's been with Alana DNA. It's awesome. Um, (laughs) So we're, we're not to connect with them on a heart level or to mourn with our brother or sister because they are mourning, because they are hurt, because they have been hurt, is not at all to say anything about the actions. We can still say actions over here are wrong. But the call of the gospel is to connect on a heart level. And then the last one, which I think is really what Paul, by the end of the book, and we'll talk about next week, is going to challenge them with, is this. It's, it's that we have to start backward. or Sorry, we have to start actually forward, kind of back to the future moment. Forward and work our way back. Okay? And what he means by that is, later on in the book, he's going to say that your hope is in heaven. Right? That our hope of a justified world, our hope of a redeemed world is in heaven. We as a church understand that there is going to be strife in this world. We hear a lot of talk right now about um, uh, racial injustice and about institutional racism. I would say this, you really actually can't get rid of institutional racism until you get rid of the people in the institution. What I mean by that is, as long as there are people, right? We are the ones that are simple. It's in our hearts. It's not just that you can create a new law and it's going to do away with us, with our hate towards one another or our prejudice towards one another or whatever form it's taking. What I'm saying is, as long as there are people involved, sin is going to be present. There's going to be injustice. There's going to be um, these tensions. And so what Paul is reminding us is we look at this future that God is taking us to. And because of that future, then today we're able to set aside our differences. Today we're able to come together and to find unity over the person and work of Jesus. So here's what's going to happen. Next week I'm going to kind of start on point three and we'll launch into that next week. Uh, But I'm so grateful to be here with you guys tonight. And I just think it's just a powerful challenge right now, at least where I am, hopefully where you are, uh, that, that Paul is speaking to this group of Christians. And I think it connects directly to us. Let's pray.